Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We've finished our series uh, in the authority of Christ in Matthew, uh, and we're beginning this new series today, but we're still in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, here at Cornerstone, we like to talk a lot about our core values, uh, or what some may call the DNA of the church. And basically, core values, or the DNA of our church, is what makes Cornerstone feel like Cornerstone. Uh, and we have five of them here at the church. And the values are very important to us because they actually help define who we are. They identify what we're excited about, what we're passionate about, what we're committed to. And then it also helps you understand uh, what this church is all about. And so if you notice, uh, what we try to do is, uh, even in the way we present announcements, we assign them to a core value um, because we want to let you know what we're doing, what we're doing to uh, pursue after uh, our core values. Uh, we could be uh, doing lots Lots of things as a church, but why are we doing the things we're doing? Why not do other things? And it's because of our commitment to these core values. Now, I realize this, uh, that many of you in this room have been here for less than six months, and so um, you've never heard us go through our core values. And so uh, I want to begin this, se uh, this uh, series going over the DNA of our church in order to orient you to what our core values are. And then for those who have been attending Cornerstone for a while, it's been almost three years since we last went over the core values, and so uh, we're going to go over them as uh, a refresher course for us. And so we're starting this new series on the DNA of Cornerstone, and the first one we're looking at is gospel centrality. And so, would you please stand with me as we read and receive God's holy word from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you pray with me once more? Father, all around um, the nation at this time, as churches begin gathering for service, uh, your word is being proclaimed. And I pray, Lord, that not only in this church, but in every Bible-believing church, that your word is being uh, heralded and that Christ is being exalted. Father, at this time, I actually particularly pray for uh, Renewal Presbyterian Church as they are launching uh, their brand new site in uh, Center City. And as they have their first official service, I pray that your spirit would particularly be uh, with those saints there, that they would continue to be salt and light and a blessing uh, to Center City. Father, and now, um, because we know that your spirit is not limited to just be at one place, be present here with us and open our hearts to understand your word, to see clearly uh, the centrality of the gospel and see it not only um, for others, but also our great need for it ourselves, Lord. So bless our time now. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, let's start off with a little exercise. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say a word, and whatever the first uh, association you have to that word, I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to share with them what it is uh, you uh, associate first. So, 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 for example, if I say uh, eagles, uh, you might turn to your neighbor and say something like football or, you know, Super Bowl champs or something like that. So, so here we go. The first one, Starbucks. And turn to your neighbor. All right. S simple. All right. Second one, Hershey's. Chocolate. Okay. Very good. Domino's. Pizza. Very good. Okay. And the last one, Cornerstone. Church. Okay. Very good. Very, very good. We did this little exercise sim simply for this. Uh, all of these companies that you've seen, uh, they sell a variety of things, but we all associate one thing with them. Right? The product, uh, they have all have one product that really sums up what they're about. And so uh, Starbucks, it's clearly coffee, but they sell other things. Uh, Hershey's, we think of chocolate, but they have a theme park. They make you know ice cream toppings. Uh, Domino's, we imagine pizza, although we also know they sell bread and pastas and desserts. Now, Cornerstone, what do you associate with Cornerstone? You know, what did you say to your neighbor? And, and, I, and I heard, you know, as you guys said it, I heard things like, you know, church. Um, I think a few of you said maybe Lansdale. Uh, I'm pretty sure I heard a, a lot of you say good-looking pastor. Um, <laughs> three very expected responses for Cornerstone. Oh, well, I bring this up because my personal goal and I hope it's yours too, is that when people think Cornerstone, the first and foremost thing that comes to their mind is gospel centrality, gospel-centeredness. You know, this is a core aspect of our DNA. It's what we do as a church, and it means what, uh, it's what we're most committed to. And because we prioritize it and place it first, it actually uh, rearranges everything else. Everything else takes place only after gospel centrality. And being gospel-centered means that all we do as a church is not only in promotion of the gospel, but it's produced by the gospel. What I mean by that is the gospel is not only the message that we proclaim, but it's the motivation by which we do ministry, right? It's the content, but it's also the engine. And the truth is, every one of us here has a gospel. Everyone here believes in a gospel, because gospel simply means uh, good news or good announcement. And in fact, uh, I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but gospel wasn't originally a Christian word at all. Gospel, the Greek word gospel, was just, uh, just a common word often used in terms of uh, military, right? When there was a war, you sent good news that your team won. When, when a king was victorious, you sent good news, a gospel that your king was victorious. So all of us, we have a gospel that we believe in, a good news that we long to see, a good news we want to hear. And so what is that good news for you? And for some people, uh, that good news is uh, having a set of initials either before or after your name, right? A doctor or, or a PhD or a JD, and you achieve these kinds of initials and you have your good news. And for others, it's, it's seeing a certain number on your, your paycheck or your direct deposit. Right? However many zeros you see, that is your good news. That's what you long to hear. And still, for some, hearing your good news or your gospel is hearing certain words like, I love you, from a boyfriend or a girlfriend uh, that maybe you hope becomes an I do uh, from a fiancé, and then maybe after that becomes a mama or papa from a baby. Right? That's the good news you want to hear. 
And the point simply is this, all of us have a good news, a good announcement that we're longing for. But you know, the Bible actually tells us about a Christian good news, a Christian gospel. But the main difference between this gospel and the gospel that we often want or desire is that the Bible says we don't have to work for, earn, or deserve the good news the Bible promises. That this gospel is offered freely to all of us, and the only thing required is faith and repentance. A turning away from old things and a turning in trust to a person. Now what is that good news I'm talking about? It's what Jesus says here in verse 13, when he says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Remember, the good news is that Jesus came into the world to seek and to save, not the moral and the righteous and the put together, but he came to seek and to save the least, the last, and the lost. Now, last week, our intern Paul preached and did a great job preaching on how Jesus meets uh, our greatest need, which is not physical and material, but he meets our greatest need, which is spiritual and relational. And he showed us how Christ meets our greatest need with his greatest deed. He forgives our sins and makes us right with God by dying in our place on the cross for our sins. You see, that good news, that gospel is what we're committed to. But here's the thing. Saying the DNA of our church or a core part of it is gospel centrality doesn't just mean that we really, really, really believe in the gospel. That's not what gospel centrality means. What it means is that the gospel is so central to what we believe that it begins to radically change us individually and corporately. That the way we understand the gospel is not just as a saving power, but a transformative power. And because it's a transformative power, it actually does something to us. It actually changes our church. It changes each one of us individually. So here's our gospel truth, which is essentially a one-sentence summary of our sermon. A gospel-centered church will be a safe place for sinners to come. A gospel-centered church will be a safe place for sinners to come. If the gospel is truly central here, it will change us and we'll become a safe place for sinners to come. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to consider three things, three uh, quick headings. We're going to look at the outcasts, the insiders, and then the outcasted insider. Right? Three simple profiles. The profile of the outcast, the profile of the insider, and the profile of the outcasted insider. And so let's consider this first one, the outcasts. Now if you keep your Bible open as you look through it with me, verse 9 begins with Jesus calling a man named Matthew to himself. Now Matthew is the author of this gospel. Uh, but before he was a disciple of Jesus, before he followed Christ, he was a tax collector, which is why we're told he was sitting at the tax booth. Now, uh, for us, the tax booth may not mean very much, but to the original audience, it was a very telling detail. The tax collectors were uh, Jews that were hated and despised by other Jews. Um, and, and I can understand a little bit, maybe you can too. Uh, I've never met in my life somebody enthusiastic to pay their taxes. Right? We all have a natural aversion to paying taxes. Uh, you know, it reminds me of this television show, uh, this comedy show called Parks and Recreation. Um, and there's this uh, particular scene where a little girl walks into a government building and she meets the character, Ron Swanson, uh, who, hates tax, uh, who hates government. And he uh, tries to explain taxes to her. And, and basically what he does is he takes her lunch bag and he empties it on the table and he says, this is your lunch. Now you should be able to do whatever you want with it, right? If you want to eat it, great. If you want to throw it away, it's your prerogative. 
But here I come, the government. And then he takes a huge bite of this little girl sandwich and he says, and I get to take 40% of your lunch. And then he proceeds to eat her chips and drink her juice and he says, Lauren, this is how taxes work. She looks up at him in just sadness and simply responds, well, that's not fair. That's how often we think about taxes. Do you remember the first time you got a paycheck and that number wasn't what you were promised to get? And you thought, where's the rest of my money? Who is FICA? Why are they stealing from me? <laughs> Naturally, even now, people aren't fans of the IRS, but you have to imagine this. The situation at the time of the Bible was so much worse. And it was so much worse because uh, tax collectors like Matthew were, were, were Jewish men, and they were hired by the Romans to collect, collect taxes on behalf of the Romans. And they were considered traitors. These tax collectors were tr considered traitors and thieves because although they were Jews, they would overtax their own kind. And so the Roman government would say, you need to collect X amount of taxes from people. But what they would do is they would collect more than what was required and then they pocketed the rest. And so they became incredibly rich by cheating their own people. But in return, they were wildly hated. They were looked down upon. They were considered scumbags and scoundrels. So they were the outcasts among Jewish society, and in fact, they were considered sinners, immoral by the religious leaders. And this is why if you read in the New Testament, so often when the word tax collector is mentioned, um, it's usually mentioned with two other terms in, in, a, in a group. Tax collectors and sinners, or tax collectors and prostitutes. Right, meaning that the way tax collectors were viewed, they were not just social outcasts, but they were spiritual outcasts, spiritual outsiders, because they were deemed unclean and immoral by the temple officials and the religious leaders. Okay, so knowing all of that, reimagine this scene with me. Jesus comes to Matthew. He sees him in his tax booth, and he says to him, I want you. I want you to follow me. You know, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't go to Matthew and says, I want you to fix your life and then come follow me. I want you to give up what you're doing. I want you to stop all of this behavior and then come follow me. That's not what he says at all. He comes to him, he sees him in his tax booth. He says, you're an outcast. You're hated. You're an outsider. You're a sinner. And that's why I want you. Follow me. You know, Jesus comes after such people. Now listen to this carefully. Jesus doesn't settle for sinners. Jesus seeks after sinners. He doesn't settle for sinners. Oh, you're the best I got. Okay, follow me. But he seeks after sinners. You know, sometimes uh, we have this idea that Jesus chose his disciples like it was a game of pickup basketball. Right? That Jesus was drawing from a limited pool of candidates and that's why he has such losers in his group. Right, as if Jesus was a team captain, there were 24 guys standing around, and he just picked the 12 best of the 24 he was given. And then, of course, you know, Judas Iscariot was picked last, which is why he was so bitter. He betrayed him at the end. That's not what happened at all. <laughs> Jesus saw Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He saw him in his place of sin, and he went after him. That's like seeing a drug addict in a crack house or a prostitute in a motel room. He sees Matthew in his place of sinful business where he schemed and cheated and stole from people and he says to him, follow me. That's how the gospel starts. Jesus comes to us in our sin. 
We don't come to him once we've left our sin. Jesus first saves, and then he sanctifies. He first calls, and then he changes. And that's such an important part of understanding the gospel. And that's why in verse 12, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, if you understand what Jesus is saying here, you'll understand why the gospel is such good news for sinners. Because it means he came after you. This is why it's so much safer to identify yourself as a sinner than it is to pretend that you're sinless. Because Jesus, he knows. He knows exactly the sin that you're stuck in. He knows the guilt and shame that you carry around. He knows the mess you've made out of yourself and out of your life. He sees you in your tax booth. And he calls out to you. You know, he still comes for you. And he comes to be a physician for the sick. And he comes to be an advocate for the guilty. And he comes to be a guide for the lost. And if you're a Christian in this room, you know, you must remember Christ came to you because you were on the outside, not because you were on the inside. You were a spiritual outcast, having offended God and cast to the margins, and yet Christ came for you. And you see, just as Jesus comes for Matthew in the tax booth, and just as he comes after the prodigal son in the pig pen, he saw you. And whatever sin that you're caught up in, whatever lie you're caught up in, whatever mess and chaos of life you're caught up in, brokenness and failure and hopelessness, and he didn't look away, he didn't look pretending not to have seen you so he wouldn't have to dirty up his own life by associating with you, but he came after you straight into the muck of whatever it is you find yourself in, and he said, follow me. The gospel says we're saved not because we've found our way inside, but because when we were standing outside, Jesus called us in. So now consider this implication with me. If this kind of gospel that begins in this way is woven into our DNA, this church and this community becomes a safe haven for those who are weak and weary and bruised and broken and the least and the last. My question as I think about our church is this. Are we a safe place for outsiders to be welcomed to the inside? Because are we a place that's open and honest about our struggles and our sins in our life? Because either we're that or what we're trying to be is a religious, uh, uh, an, an elite club of religious, uh, well-behaved people who come weekly to put on our show of our best behavior and righteous performance. You know, I wonder this. If an outsider walked into our church and overheard the types of conversation that were taking place during time of fellowship, would they hear such honesty and humility and understand that this is a church full of imperfect sinners where they feel safe because they know they're not alone, or would they come and sense a total lack of honesty and humility because all they sense is that church belongs to people who have no problems and have their life all put together? You know, having the gospel at the center of our church should change the way that we feel and we smell. And it begins with you, understanding that you were an outsider, broken and lost in sin, and Christ called you in. 
Now, here's an interesting detail. Um, often what happens in the gospel accounts is that they're recorded in multiple gospels. And this story is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but Mar Matthew is really humble, and he, he uh, leaves out this detail. He leaves out the detail uh, that where the gathering took place of these tax collectors and sinners was actually at his house. Now, it makes sense because Matthew would have been filthy, incredibly rich, and as a result, his place would have been large enough that he could invite people over. But here's what's interesting. Matthew encounters Jesus, and he experiences his grace and this mercy he's never experienced before. And because Jesus comes to him and calls him out, and Matthew experiences, what does he do? He then goes and he invites his friends over, other needy and helpless, outcasted sinners. Now, Matthew, why does he do this? Because at this point, Matthew feels like, hey guys, you have to come check this guy out. It's safe with him. This guy, this rabbi, he's not like the other ones. He's willing to identify with people like us. You see, the, the gospel, a true encounter of Christ and his grace leads to that kind of response. It's the same thing that happened with the scandalous woman in John 4 at the well when Jesus meets her and she encounters Jesus who talks to her and then she goes out to the town to the very people who rejected her and says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. If you've experienced Christ's mercy, his grace, his kindness in your life, then are we creating a safe place here where others can be invited in? Because the gospel message is so clear to you. Nobody is too far outside. Nobody is too far outcasted for Christ to call. Because if he came to save a sinner like me, then he can come and save a sinner like you. Now, I also want to mention this. If you're not a believer in, in this room, um, just consider for a second how unlike other religions Christianity is. Because maybe it, it challenges some of the assumptions uh, you've made in the past. Because what the gospel is saying is, is you don't clean yourself up and then come to Jesus. Now you come to Jesus and he cleans you up. Right? You don't present yourself to Jesus when you're finally ready but he calls out to you where you are. Now, just consider for a second how radical of a message that is and what kind of good news that is. You know, friends, all of us in here, left to ourselves, we are spiritual outcasts, cut off from God because of our sin, nothing we could do, but the good news is Jesus searches for people on the margins and he looks for people on the sidelines the profile of the outsider. Now consider with me this, the profile of the insider. Right, the story continues, and in verse 10, uh, Matthew, he includes a little word that the uh, other authors don't, Mark and Luke don't. He adds this word, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. Behold, because Matthew wants to draw our attention to the fact there are many outcasts and outsiders around Jesus. And that Jesus wasn't afraid to share fellowship, to share a dinner table with those who had a bad reputation. Now that's important because that scene contrasts directly with the Pharisees. Jesus had no problem eating with people who were uh, considered uh, in such a negative light. But these Pharisees, they clearly had a problem. They were not cool with it at all. And in fact, they're so um, worked up about it, riled up, that they turn to the disciples in verse 11 and they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or they're, they're like so offended and disgusted at Jesus' actions 
because they are religious insiders and they don't want to dirty themselves, sully themselves in the company of such people. And they're thinking, why would Jesus do that? Now here's what you need to know about the scene because the way that it's presented, it seems like uh, the Pharisees are there, you know, hanging out with all the other tax collectors and sinners, you know, red solo cup in hand just with them. That's not actually what's happening at all. What's happening is most likely these guys weren't even invited. They weren't invited to the party, but in the ancient culture, uh, this gathering would have taken place uh, in Matthew's home, which would have been uh, very open and it's kind of like a party in a yard, right? And so the Pharisees are on the outside, maybe where the fences not that they had, you know, fences up this high. That's just like an American thing. But it would have been wide open. The Pharisees would have been looking and seeing the activity taking place, and they were judging from a distance. And here's what's really interesting about the scene. as Because they're not in the party. They're standing on the outside, and they're looking at the party. And the interesting thing is, they're the insiders, right? They think they're the insiders when, in fact, they're actually judging from the outside looking in. Now think about that with me. Like Jesus has this like really interesting uh, way, this profound way of doing this, uh, of making outsiders feel like insiders, and insiders realize that they're actually on the outside. And as the religious leaders of their day, you know, they're frustrated that this respected rabbi is spending time with such immoral and unclean people, because it's something they would never do, not even in their imaginations. And so when they ask the question, what is your, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's actually revealing an attitude in them that's antithetical to the gospel. Because that kind of attitude, it reeks of arrogance and self-righteousness. Why would he be with them? But sadly, that is an attitude I find in myself at work. And I'm sure it's an attitude that's at work in you and oftentimes is an attitude that our church seems to get across. Because having uh, been brought inside by Jesus, we forget that we were outsiders as well. We forget that unless it was for Jesus, we would still be a spiritual outcast. But instead, now having tasted a little bit of what it means to be on the inside, we begin looking down on others. And that happens in our lives. Can, can you sense it? And, and it's often in, in just these ever so slight ways where we, where we harbor a spirit of judgment and criticism and harsh evaluation. Right? We not only think too highly of ourselves, but then we also think too lowly of others. Why are they living that way? Why are they so late to church all the time? Why don't they care more about others? Why do they keep making such unwise decisions? You know, can you guys sense and identify that Pharisaic spirit at work in yourself? And, and here's the thing. If you can't, if you can't notice that in yourselves, I'm sorry to tell you this, but sometimes the fact that you can see it so clearly in others and not see it in yourself is actually the clearest evidence that you are in fact just like them. But the humility the gospel produces in people should lead us to exclamations of wow more than why. Wow. Jesus associates with the lowly. Not why does Jesus associate with the lowly? 
But our lives should reflect more amazement at Jesus rather than arrogance in ourselves because the humble are captivated by God's grace, not critical of God's grace. And to lose sight of the gospel and to develop this kind of religious insider heart is so destructive to the church because it's a virus that attacks the air of grace that we all need to breathe. So when we lose sight of the gospel and it's no longer central, one of the first things that happens is the church becomes a dangerous place for sinners. Right? It's no longer safe because we no longer let Jesus bring outsiders in. We don't want sticky people coming in. We don't want messy people coming in and dirtying what we've worked so hard to clean up. Like that dining room in our house that we're so concerned is kept immaculate and unstained. It's no longer a room for dining. It's a room for displaying. Too often that's what the church becomes. But what is the church if it's not a harbor where the battered and broken are received? Not where the perfect and the pristine are displayed for the world to see. Right. What is the church if not a hospital for sinners where you come with sickness and infirmities and not a museum for saints where the healthy and put together uh, proudly wear their righteousness on their sleeves? And Jesus, he challenges the attitude of the religious insiders. And he says, listen, the sick need a physician. Sinners need a savior. That's why I came. That's why I'm with these people. So can we lay down our religious insider attitudes and open our arms and embrace spiritual weakness and sickness to welcome those Christ has come for? First, by admitting we were on the outside, broken, lost, and sinful. And if that has taken place in your heart, then, then I think you, you will never say about another person, like, why is that person here? But you only ever exclaim, wow, praise God that person is here. You know, this past week I was talking with uh, somebody in our congregation, uh, and they shared this uh, amazing, amusing, providential story. Uh, this brother shared with me that when he was in college, um, that he attended a, a frat party, one of those fraternity parties one weekend. And at that party, he met some people visiting uh, who didn't attend the school, but they came just for the weekend. Uh, you know, those people who travel to schools to party. And he saw, he, you know, so they, they were at this party, they had a good time. That was the end of the matter. They partied, had fun, never saw that person again. Fast forward a few years later, and what would you know that when that person came to visit Cornerstone, uh, one of the first faces he saw and immediately recognized was the face of that person that he had seen at the party years ago. Wasn't my face, don't worry. <laughs> But he said the juxtaposition, the contrast was so wild because the last place he'd imagined to see them was at church, you know, after seeing them at that party, uh, you know, years ago. And that contrast, right? Like same two people, but in two completely different scenarios, right? In the first one, people are getting drunk off the of spirits. And in the second one, people are getting drunk in the spirit. <laughs> you know, the settings are two completely different ones. And yet in that moment, that confrontation with the person, what is the attitude? Now imagine yourself in that, right? Because you can respond in one of two ways, right? A proud religious insider would say, why God, him? That guy? I know his past. Really? But a humble, gospel-transformed believer would say, wow, God, him? That guy? I know his past. Really? 
You see, which kind of response creates a safer place for sinners to be? Which is more welcoming? Which reveals that you understand you were a sinner on the outside, brought inside by Jesus? And what's more aligned with his mission and his calling for us? You know, this is what it can look like when the gospel becomes a part of our DNA. Now, Jesus ends uh, by saying to the Pharisees in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, we read that, and it doesn't mean too much to us, but uh, let me tell you, if the first thing Jesus, if Jesus eating with sinners was offensive to Jesus, it was like uh, smacking them in the face, then when Jesus says, go and learn what this means, that's like following that smack with spitting it in their face. That's how offensive it is. Here's why. Go and learn what this means was an expression that rabbis used to their students. Go and learn what this means, and then they would go study the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, the Old Testament. And the fact that Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who prided themselves in knowing God's scripture, they were experts in the law, Jesus is saying to them, hey, why don't you go and learn what this means, implies that they have no idea what they're talking about. Imagine how offensive that is, right? It, it's like encouraging the praise leader by saying, hey, why don't you go learn guitar? Or if you come up to me and you, you know, suggest that I go study preaching some more. You know, I would laugh for a bit. And then I'd go home and cry. <laughs> and when Jesus says this to them, it's deeply offensive. He's saying, you have no idea what you're talking about because you've missed the heart of God. You've become an expert on the behavior of the law, but you've missed the heart of the law. You've missed what God is really about, which is not the external outworkings of sacrifice, but the internal heart of mercy, of love, of compassion, of forgiveness, of grace. And in the same way, we cannot forget the heart of God as is revealed in the gospel. That Jesus came as a physician for the sick, not the healthy. He came to save sinners, not the righteous. That's why he spent time with them. And so as a church, we cannot miss the heart of God in sending Jesus into this world for sinners like us. And if you, and I assume you do, harbor a kind of Pharisaic insider attitude, we need to repent of that. Because in that attitude, we've made the church an unsafe place for sick and sinners uh, to come. Because we've essentially told them they're not welcome here. They're not wanted here. And that only happens when we've forgotten who we were apart from Jesus. I think when we're honest about our sins and our struggles, when we admit that we're not on the inside by our own efforts, but by grace alone, then we begin to harbor a, a culture, an atmosphere of grace, where the gospel reigns, and we exhibit a humility where we position ourselves below everybody and we never stand in judgment over them. And we welcome people warmly because we've been welcomed in. And God will use us to make people feel that it's safe to be a sinner at church because it's here that the physician heals. What will sustain this kind of culture in the church? What would transform each one of us so radically that Cornerstone is known to be a safe harbor for the spiritual outcast and outsider? And the answer is only a confrontation, an experience, a deep experience with Christ in the gospel, which leads to our last point, the outcasted insider. 
You know, in verse 11, the Pharisees, um, they lay, lay a veiled accusation at Jesus. It's, they ask a question, but it's a veiled accusation. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But that veiled accusation morphs into a full-blown assertion. In chapter 11, they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And what you actually see is Jesus was willing to share in the ridicule of the tax collectors and the reputation of the prostitutes and the rejection of sinners because these were the very people he came to save, right? people like you and me. But, but here's the thing. Jesus did not associate with these sinners because he approved of their sins. That's not what's happening at all. Jesus associated himself with these sinners because by identifying with them so closely, he was showing us what he would actually do for them. Because you see, Jesus didn't just hang around sinners. The Bible actually says that Jesus became sin for them. He became sin for us. In fact, Jesus associated, he identified with us so closely that he took our sins off of himself and placed them on himself. That he identified, he associated with us so closely that he received the punishment we deserve for those sins so that we could be healed and forgiven. If you think about it, until his very last breath, Jesus never stopped associating with sinners. Because remember there on Calvary's hill, he was literally crucified between and in the presence of two guilty thieves. You see, what's happening there on the cross is that Jesus, the only perfect insider, the Son of God who shared intimate insider fellowship with God the Father from all eternity, that insider became sin for us and was cast out of God's presence. And what we see happening in the gospel is that the insider was cast out so that the outcasts could be brought in. And Jesus took our place on the outside. He was crucified on Golgotha, outside of the city walls. And we are now brought into the very presence of God. Now we share that ultimate insider status and position. And when you understand the good news, and it takes this kind of central place in your heart, it takes place and it really roots itself in the church's life, then everything begins to orient around it because nothing becomes the same. You know, Jesus here, he quotes Hosea 6.6 when he says, you know, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, why would God say that? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the reason is because God is saying, listen, I desire mercy and not sacrifice because I'm going to make the ultimate sacrifice for you. I don't need you to improve on what my son Jesus did for you. His sacrifice was enough. It was perfect. So if you really believe the gospel, I don't need more sacrifice. Christ was enough. What I want from you is mercy. I want evidence of transformation that you understand the price and payment of that sacrifice. And so when the gospel takes root in our hearts, it takes root in this church, we become a safe place for sinners to come. Why? Because this is where the Savior is. There's no other place that could be better than the church that is centered on the gospel. Now, let me close with two thoughts. First is this. If you're an unbeliever here, thank you for joining us. Thank you for coming. And I hope that your experience, at least so far in the past hour, has been somewhat close to the type of church we want to be and the vision we're casting for our church. Thank you for coming. 
If you are a Christian, if you are a believer here, though, let me just ask you this. What's one thing you can begin to do, or one change you need to make, or one thing you need to repent of, to begin living out a type of gospel vision in your own life, or help create in this church where this becomes a safe place that sinners are welcomed? Whether that's through beginning now to be open and honest about your own struggles, open and honest about your own neediness, confessing judgment in ways that you have been arrogant toward others, praying for more humility, in whichever way, what is one way that the gospel can now begin to change you so that this church has its doors wide open and says, sinners welcomed. All the outcasts, welcome inside. Because Jesus welcomes you. He is a friend of sinners. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that in your word, we, you have given to us um, Christ, who comes not for the perfect and put together he does not come for those who have already cleaned themselves up, but he comes for the messy and the dirty and the sticky and the stuck. He came for us sinners who, to ourselves, in our sin, could never find our way inside. But through Jesus, you've made that way possible. I pray if that gospel has truly penetrated my heart and the hearts of my friends here, that it would lead to deep change, deep transformation. God, keep the gospel ever before us as a church. Not just something that we say we believe in, but something that we love and that is planted so deep in our hearts it would make us into the church that you want us to be, your body, your hands and feet that's open wide as a safe place for sinners to come because here there is a Savior. There is a physician and his name is Jesus. He is a friend of sinners. And in his name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah, what a Savior indeed. Friends, now receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, a friend of sinners, and the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you hear the words of dismissal? Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Go in peace, friends.